Welcome to the Statesman Journal's Explore Oregon podcast. I'm your host, Zachary Ness, and in each episode, we highlight Oregon's most beautiful and interesting places. This podcast is brought to you by the American Forest Resource Council, supporting responsible forestry on public lands throughout the Pacific Northwest. Learn more at amforest.org. We're also supported by Visit Tillamook Coast, a land of ocean and forest just an hour from the Willamette Valley that is focusing this summer on the best way to care for its forests, beaches, and waterways through a promotion that emphasizes cleaning up and leaving no trace. We'll dive into how they're doing that just a little bit later in the show. Finally, the Oregon Parks and Recreation Department encourages Oregonians to enjoy parks safely this summer. If you're camping, please follow campfire safety guidelines, such as keeping flames from your fires to no more than two feet in height and using fire rings provided at campsites. And please use local wood to avoid bringing invasive insects into parks. This will help preserve the health of Oregon's forests for seasons to come. Learn more about campfire guidelines, including restrictions at stateparks.oregon.gov. All right, in today's episode, we're talking about the ongoing closure and hopeful reopening of one of the Coast Range's most spectacular parks, Saddle Mountain. At 3,300 feet, this island in the sky is home to some of Oregon's best views and rarest plants and animals. The question we're going to answer is when people will be allowed to return. But first, here's some guitar music to get us rolling. Right, so today we're going to be talking about Saddle Mountain State Natural Area. If you've never been, Saddle Mountain is one of the Coast Range's tallest peaks and best hikes. It has rare wildflowers, endangered butterflies, and a view where the Columbia River meets the Pacific Ocean. It's sandwiched between Portland and the coast, and it's one of the most popular hikes in the area. But for the past three years, the park has been closed on a regular basis for a series of many unfortunate events. First, it was closed by the COVID-19 shutdowns. Then it was closed by short staffing. Lately, it's had a broken bridge and mangled trail. Overall, it's been closed for all but a few months during the past three years, and that includes right now. Our outdoors journalism intern, Charlie Gearing, was lucky enough to head up to Saddle Mountain in late May to see the current damage and help understand why the park is still closed and when it might reopen. Charlie joins us again today. Hey, man, how's it going? Hey, Zach. I'm doing great today. Thanks for having me on. I'm looking forward to catching you guys up to speed on all things Saddle Mountain. Okay, so we're going to walk a fine line in today's podcast. We're going to talk about what makes Saddle Mountain special because it is a special place, while also explaining why it's closed and when it's going to reopen, which hopefully, fingers crossed, would be later this summer or maybe early fall. If you've never been, we'll make the case that you should go and you should put this on your list for when it does open. But if you're one of those people who've been waiting to return and maybe frustrated about why it's taking so long, we've got an interview with a park ranger who's going to explain the reason for some of the delays. And in the end, we're going to discuss this idea of closing public lands in the name of safety, which, for good or bad, has been a rising trend of the past half decade. 
But let's start by taking a step back and looking at the peak itself. Charlie, you were just there. You spent a lot of time talking with a ranger. Tell us what makes Saddle Mountain special and why it's become such a beloved hiking area. There are numerous aspects to this area that make it unique, going far beyond the obvious kind of height and incredible vistas that it has to offer. To really delve into this, you actually kind of have to start way back in ancient history. Bear with me, folks. Uh, at one point, what we now know as the Coast Range, most of it was underwater, beneath deep ancient oceans. Now, during that time, many of the higher peaks of the Coast Range were actually islands. So imagine that, this sort of chain of islands in the place that's now the Coast Range. Each of these islands had isolated species of plants and animals that evolved uniquely and independently from one another to the extent that once the ancient oceans eventually receded, you'd have crazy unique plant and animal populations atop these mountains that, that were at one point islands. So as a result, the area is home to some really incredibly rare and diverse wildflowers spanning from the more common blaze orange Indian paintbrush to many other more rare obscure species. With flower diversity comes many other things too, like the rare butterflies such as the federally threatened silver spot butterfly, the marble murelette, which is a threatened migratory seabird, also calls this place home. There's dense vegetation throughout and of course some really cool dramatic weathered basalt rock faces that make up the area's saddle shape, its namesake. In many ways, this is a biome that's just further evolved and more developed than a lot of the rest in the area. It's had more time to grow as an ecosystem, which is really cool to me as, as someone who kind of nerds out on this stuff. The wildness of this area is really unique in the coast range. And that's one thing that actually has probably benefited from the closure, um, if that's any consolation to silver lining. And, and we'll talk about that later on. Yeah, the scenery at Saddle is pretty striking. When you're near the top, there's this feeling of kind of being on a, on a floating island. Like if you close your eyes, you can kind of imagine it as that island that it once was because you're just rising high above the other coast range peaks but you can also see out to the ocean and so that take that creates kind of that island feeling to it and you can see the mouth of the columbia river which is pretty cool i can't think of a lot of other places where you can see those two critical you know iconic landscapes sort of colliding the way they do at uh you know at the mouth of the columbia it's also a bigger challenge than a lot of other state park hikes. It's longer, it's a tougher hike than, than a lot of other places. So when it's open, what's the mileage and more specifically the climb here, Charlie? Yeah, like you mentioned, this isn't your typical easy state park hike. This is a high effort, but very high reward hike. This this place offers a steep climb up to the summit, roughly 1,800 feet almost in, in elevation gain and four and a half miles total out and back. Yeah. And, you know, I always think of there's there's a kind of a saddle in the hike where you've been climbing up, 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 and then you come to like kind of a plateau and you see up towards the summit. And it's it's an iconic picture. It's a really beautiful spot where there's you can see this kind of green grassy meadow spreading out in front of you. You can see the trail kind of heading up there. It's just this really cool spot. So there's just like unique things about this mountain that you don't see in a lot of like Cascade Peaks. Like a lot of the Cascade Peaks kind of look sort of the same, whereas this place really sticks out. It's just got a unique shape uh, and just looks unique. Now, we are going to get into why it's closed. Trust me. Um, but you mentioned that special flora and fauna. And there's a great example of both here at Saddle Mountain. And that is the Oregon Silver Spot Butterfly and the Early Blue Violet. So silver spots are a really pretty butterfly. 
they're small and reddish orange with that distinctive silver spots. Uh, they were once found on coastal grasslands from Northern California to Southern Washington. But as often happens, you know, the development changes to the forest, invasive weeds and grasses, all of that reduced the habit and led to a pretty swift decline for silver spots to the point that they were found in only a few locations on the West Coast and they're protected under the Federal Endangered Species Act. Now, a big part of their decline was the loss of a pretty rare flower, and that is the early blue violet. Saddle Mountain just so happens to be home to a very healthy population of early blue violets. So in 2018, federal and state biologists started releasing 500 silver spot caterpillars to the, uh, to the mountain's meadows each spring. The effort appears to be working. A 2020 survey found 82 adult silver spots along the mountain's trails, with a real population likely higher in the mountain's steep meadows. I saw one myself when I was there a few weeks ago. It was really cool. Most recently, biologists with parks said they were seeing a good indication that the release butterflies were successfully reproducing. This is obviously really great news for, for a threatened species. Yeah, so you just kind of see those two kind of, you know, it's this rare plant that evolved there you know these rare butterflies and they kind of need each other and so this this made it a good uh spot for that so obviously saddle mountain's a cool place for all these reasons that we've already laid out but as we mentioned off the top it's closed right now and it's been closed kind of a lot since 2020 so what, what's going on here charlie why is this place so snake bit so the closure started back in 2020 due to the COVID-19 pandemic that shut down all parks and public lands in Oregon. The park's gate was closed, public access was prohibited. Then it was one of the places that actually stayed closed after other parks opened due to short staffing at other state parks. Yeah, that was an interesting moment because, you know, we had this full shutdown of everything in Oregon recreation-wise and still one of the most bizarre moments in state history and we actually did a podcast with the director of state parks where she talked about the decision to do that and everything that came with it um, but by closing down you know state parks lost a lot of money they actually had a 22 million dollar shortfall so they had this you know they had about half of the rangers that they would normally have for the season so they had to make this decision where which parks would they reopen uh, when they reopened that year and they kind of picked, you know, the most popular ones and the, you know, less visited or more off the grid ones like Saddle Mountain were just kind of kept closed for a while until they were able to get back whole and then rehire all those rangers. So that was kind of that that gap in between there. But that obviously was just the start of problems at Saddle Mountain. So, so what ha happened after that? The issues since then have had to do with the trail. The main issues on the trail today have to do with, number one, a bridge failure and two, the gabion covering on the trail, which for those who don't know, are the sort of metal chain link coverings on the trails that are usually utilized as kind of a stabilizer for steep areas with loose gravel. So first, I'll touch on the bridge. Almost a half mile into the hike, uh, there's a bridge that in all honesty was a little bit sketchy to begin with. Um, it's basically just two long, kind of thin wooden planks um, placed next to one another with no railing or anything. But one of the two planks fell down into sort of this divot below where the bridge was crossing. So now that's no problem for a hiker to get by or pass because it does still support weight with just the one plank. But the issue is that it's not passable for people carrying rescue equipment like gurneys and things like that. So it can be really slippery when wet as well. So 
that's sort of the major theme with a lot of the aspects that keep the place closed. It's not necessarily about the hikers not being able to pass some of these obstacles, but it's about the emergency response teams that need to be able to get up and down in order to help people. And they need to be able to do so quickly. So the same theme goes for the second issue I mentioned, which is the conditions of the gaping sections. It's rusty, free hanging in some spots and can be a real tripping hazard to go over in a lot of areas. It's, is it impossible to hike through and over it? No. But is it possible to cross with rescue equipment? That's a lot harder to imagine. So therein lies the problem, really. And the final thing that I'll add here that's happened in the park is a lot of you listeners may remember there was potable water. There was a huge water tank there. It is now defunct, and there's a pretty significant leaking problem with that. So that has not helped at all when it comes to getting this park back open and getting people back up that trail. Okay. Well, we're going to hear from the ranger specifically in just a little bit, but to be clear, I mean, this, it's not necessarily the fact that people or like really hardy hikers couldn't hike their way to the top. It's that it's unsafe in the sense that it could cause accidents from people. And then when those people get injured, it would be very difficult or near impossible to get rescue teams up there. So that's, that's what they're talking about too. Cause this is a really, really popular place. Like if you go there on a spring weekend, it is packed and there have been plenty of rescues up there so that's that's mainly what they're focusing on those that inability to get rescue crews up exactly that's that's exactly right um the main issue here is is not like passability it's it's mainly has to do with how are you going to get equipment up there to help people when they need it okay so at this point when are they actually planning to reopen the park and what are some changes people might see when it's reopened the tentative timeline for the reopening of this park is at some point toward the end of summer. Um, but as of now, there's no official date available. The hope is to have it reopened and available at some time when people can at least enjoy, enjoy part of the summer up there. Uh, however, the park will look different than it used to, like you mentioned. This is going to start with the campground. Originally, there were about 10 campsites there. Due to a lack of potable water in the park, there will no longer be camping. It's unfortunate, but... Um, officials decided that, you know, given the fact that we cannot get water in there, um, there will not be camping allowed. So that is one pretty significant change. Um, but there also are other changes that aren't quite as sad. Uh, one of these being that the state park uh, team is currently working on building out the picnic and day use area there. So they've done some forestry work to create a really nice view of the Saddle Mountain from the base. They've refurbished some picnic tables and, and kind of created a, a nice wide open area where people can hang out um, after a long day on the trail. Okay, so the, the campground is going to just be transformed into a picnic and day use area at the bottom. In, a, in probably a couple months, you won't even know there were ever campsites there. It's just it's just they're kind of letting it return to nature in that area. Um, and then the, the day use kind of picnic area will be on the other side of the parking lot, so opposite the trailhead. Um, and that's going to be down a brief little walking path, probably about 100, 100 feet or so. Um, there's going to be a bunch of picnic tables and, and kind of a wide open area with a view of the Saddle Mountain. Okay, so we're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsors. When we return, Charlie has an interview with a park ranger at Saddle Mountain who gets into the nitty gritty of the closure and why it's taking so long to reopen. And we'll wrap up, as promised, with some thoughts about public lands closures. 
I'm Sarah Melton with the American Forest Resource Council. I love the outdoors and exploring the forests near my hometown. My job is to protect our forests and wildlife. I work to defend forest management projects in the courtroom and to support the workers and agencies who steward our forests and public lands. Good forest management based on the best science keeps our forests healthy, improves wildlife habitat, keeps our air and water clean, and gives us the sustainable timber we need for renewable and climate-friendly wood products. AFRC is proud to sponsor the Explore Oregon podcast. Learn more about us at amforest.org. This message is brought to you by Visit Tillamook Coast. On the Tillamook Coast, we've cared for our forest, farmlands, beaches, and waterways for generations. It's in our DNA, and we bet it's in yours too. While visiting, help us care for our coast. Place trash in garbage cans, pick up after your pet, stay on trails, respect private property, and follow beach fire rules, which means extinguishing fires with water while also checking local rules to avoid igniting wildfires. Tillamook Coast welcomes your visit, and we hope that you'll become a temporary local while here. A few ways to do that include pitching in on a beach cleanup or taking a guided kayak tour to hear about ways to protect bays and rivers. There are science hikes to take, nature preserves and marine reserves to explore, or you can visit a farm, a commercial fishing dock, or even stop by a fish hatchery. Find out about all these options and how to care for our coast at tillamookcoast.com slash caringforourcoast. Once again, it's tillamookcoast.com slash caringforourcoast. Okay, welcome back. Well, as we mentioned, you hiked the trail with a ranger. Uh, who you got to speak with about the area, about what keeps it closed today, and some of the challenges for getting it reopened. So set this up for us. What, who are we going to be hearing from, and what are they going to share with us? We're going to be hearing from Eric Crum, who is a North Coast District Beach Ranger for Oregon State Parks. These issues have taken a lot longer to fix than I think a lot of the hiking community would would imagine. And Eric is going to shed some light on to why that is. Without further ado, here is Eric Crum of Oregon State Parks. So tell me a little bit about some of the, the holdups here um, and some of the things that continue to keep the park closed. Uh, and then, you know, also some of the things that are stopping you from, from so readily getting to the work like you'd you know, prefer to be. Sure. So like with the bridge failure, for instance, I, I think a lot of people maybe think like, well, just put a new bridge in or just fix that. And it's a little more complicated than that. Um, you know, there's a lot of process and there's a lot of permits and things that need to happen before you can just go build a bridge for this area in particular we have to consult with the local tribes saddle mountain is a very culturally significant spot for them Um, so we have to actually get clearance from them to do any work up here or any improvement Um, that also involves the state historic preservation office shippo we need write-off from them we need clearance from them before we can even think about doing anything Um, and then in addition 
you know, it'd just be like anybody, you know, trying to build a house, right? Um, you can't just go do that. So we would need erosion permits. We need geologic hazard review, um, engineering review, especially for a bridge. So there's a lot of behind the scenes work that actually needs to get done before we can go boots on the ground and actually put a new bridge in. Um, and that can be said too, for a lot of some of the more complicated fixes that we've seen up on the trail, like failed crib walls and stuff from those are substantial, um, building projects, construction projects that actually need a lot of permitting and, um, a lot of stuff needs to get done ahead of time. And that can really, that can slow things down. And I think that frustrates people when they, you know, see that the park's just sitting closed and well, nothing's happening. Well, there's a lot happening actually. We're going through the proper steps. Um, you know, I mentioned there's marbled murelet here that there's seasonal restrictions on what we're allowed to do because of that, because of their nesting season. Um, so just, you know, all that kind of hits, you know, together and, and we are working through that stuff. We are trying to open, um, you know, and hopefully we are able to open, you know, we're trying to salvage some of this season's recreational season. Um, so hopefully by, you know, late end of summer, I, I, we're, we're trying to get it open by then. So sure. we'll see if we can work through some of this stuff. And would you say, you know, you kind of touched on this a second ago, some of the really special things about this place are also some of the things that make it pretty darn complicated to do work to get this place reopened? Mm-hmm. Yeah, correct. Yeah, I mean, when you have threatened or endangered species that potentially inhabit the area, I mean, that limits, we have to work through fish and wildlife to get certain exceptions. That limits our ability to use motorized equipment, especially during the summer. And during the summer is pretty much our only time to do a lot of this work. I think I mentioned on the trail four weeks ago, I was hiking up here and it was a full blizzard. There was, you know, we were post holding up to our knees in snow. So our work window is also very limited. And then you add in seasonal restrictions with threatened species being around, um, you know, weather and things. It just, it really tightens um, and reduces our ability to just, you know, work on it all year. Right. You also mentioned earlier the, 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 uh, the rules on gas-powered equipment, right? So those kind of go into effect later in the summer, right? So you wouldn't be able to bring up like a gas chainsaw or whatever you might need farther up. Yeah, and I can't remember the specific dates offhand without having them. But yeah, they're because this is potential nesting habitat for marbled murrelet. Um, during their nesting season, that limits our ability to utilize certain equipment like chainsaws, gas-powered equipment, um, because they're migrating, you know, to and from the ocean, typically in the morning and in the evening, I believe. Um, you know, our window of operation I think is from like 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. or something like that, where you can actually do that and but you still have to go through and get those approvals and exceptions from fish and wildlife stuff before you even do that. Mm-hmm. Um, so just, just for that one species being here adds, you know, that much more of a complication for just going up and doing the work. Right. Cause right. that's a very steep climb. I don't know. I'm not pushing a manual wheelbarrow up there. We need, you know, we, we really need motorized equipment. We need stuff to be dropped off. Um, it's a 1600 foot climb to the top it's very hard getting material up there. It's very hard getting two by fours up there even. Um, so, yeah. I might add too, for the listeners that it is, uh, it is, it is a hard climb. This is a, <laughs> this is a good workout. Uh, but it is high reward for yep. sure. Um, this is a really deeply special place. Um, and it also can be a little bit dangerous. Yeah. You want to speak on that at all as well? We just, I mean, that's part of why we're trying to get the trail in better shape. You know, we've had 
when we reopened it, there were a couple injuries, um, and it's extremely difficult to get help and people off the mountain if they are injured. Um, and we want to make sure that we're working closely with our local emergency partners um, that help us do those rescues. And part of you know, why the trail is closed now is because of that. There, there is not good access up there. If something happens, it's, it's going to be extremely challenging getting them down off the mountain currently. Um, so we want to make sure it's, it's as safe as it can be. Granted, you're climbing a mountain, and it's a, very, it's a challenging hike. I think it's an expert-only hike. Um, you know, there's no potable water up here. You have to come prepared. Um, but that's, you know, that's part of it. We've got to make it, we've got to make it safer for people. Right. Now, earlier we talked about, you know, all the important flora and fauna, the rare wildflowers, the rare butterflies that are trying to rebound up at Saddle Mountain. Um, But you mentioned earlier in our conversation that this place has benefited in some ways from the reduced public hiking traffic. So uh, talk about this. What is what's this? What's this is a silver lining? Indeed, Zach. Uh, It it definitely has. Um, Like I mentioned earlier, this has historically been a very wild place for the Coast Range. So parks officials did mention that kind of as a silver lining, the closure from public traffic has allowed the place and the ecosystem and its and its species that call it home to sort of rewild and grow in the absence of people. It's really crazy and remarkable how fast a trail becomes overgrown with wildflowers or how the elk and other mammals return to an area when there aren't people around. Yes, it's a bummer that we can't go out and enjoy Saddle Mountain right now. But at the same time, if you think of it as kind of giving nature a break or something along those lines, I find that it really reduces the blow. The flip side of this, and I sort of get into this with my interview with Eric, is that a lot of things that make Saddle Mountain so striking also make it harder to get to work on reopening it. Picture a trail that's overgrown with shrubs and wildflowers. At most other places, you could go in and cut away vegetation that's coming out of the trail. Um, but if there are super rare and amazing wildflowers, you can't just go in there with, you know, a, a weed whacker. That's that technique would obviously not be recommended. You know, you don't want to just saw through indiscriminately and and potentially kill some wildflowers. So that's those are some of the challenges that that go with that. Okay, so all of what you said and what Eric said makes a level of sense. Like this idea of keeping places safe makes sense the idea of making it safer or easier for rescue crews to get in there um is is highly logical because people are inevitably going to get hurt on this this is a popular trail when you go out here on like a peak summer weekend or on like a peak spring weekend like when it's the wildflowers are going good and it's sunny a ton of people from portland come out here so it gets very popular so like all the stuff he's saying about safety it definitely applies here and it has happened here but I'm going to have to play devil's advocate a little bit here by channeling well-known outdoors advocate Andy Stahl. He's probably best known as the guy who filed the original Spotted Owl lawsuit. He's been part of Oregon's outdoors and environment scene for decades. But lately, he's become an advocate for pushing back against the increasing number of times when public agencies are closing public lands in the name of safety. So historically, Oregon almost never closed public lands, but it has becoming more and more common as Oregon's population grows, as the number of rescues increase, there's this push towards keeping people safe. 
you know, if you wanted to be cynical about it, you could call it kind of the rise of a nanny state outdoors, although that's probably pushing it too far. But he'd make that argument. I mean, safety was a key reason why thousands of acres of public lands burned in the Labor Day fire were closed for years. Like they said, a tree might fall on you and therefore it wasn't safe. Other places in the gorge, like Oneonta Gorge, have been closed for years again in the name of safety. But look, Oregon's outdoors is never going to be 100% safe. There is always going to be an element of risk to the outdoors. That's why we like it. Almost every year, a person dies attempting to climb Mount Hood, and multiple people are rescued. But we don't close Mount Hood to climbing. The deadliest rapids in Oregon have traditionally been Blossom Bar Rapids on the Rogue River, but rafting continues. I've hiked some of the worst trails I think probably in the world in Southern Oregon's Calmeopsis Wilderness. I mean, these trails at one point were literally covered with thousands of downed trees, bramble growing up. You couldn't even see the trails in many cases. Bridges were washed out all the time, even at its worst. And even when people were getting lost for days on end because the trail was so bad, it was never closed. It is, of course, important to minimize risk by fixing bridges and improving trails, but what happens if Oregon State Parks gets a, you know, a slashed budget or they don't have the money for maintenance? Are they just going to forever keep a bunch of places closed because it's too dangerous? So, I mean, I'm channeling Andy here and he's just always made the case that you should lead by putting up a sign that says bridge out, trail in awful shape, proceed at your own risk, as opposed to years long shutdowns. Like it's a tough calculus. I personally wouldn't want to be in charge of making that call, but his point is that you should err on the side of keeping a place open and letting people make their own decisions. I don't always agree, but that's the case against the public land closures, like potentially the one at Saddle Mountain. Yeah, I think what you're getting at here is is a pretty interesting power of perception dilemma. And because in a state park, the sort of standard that trails, facilities, et cetera, are looked at is so, so different than what you'd see in, say, a designated wilderness area, right? Where you don't expect trails to be super well kept. You you definitely ex- accept and expect some hazards on the trail, right? If Saddle Mountain Trail was in a designated wilderness area, it'd probably be open and it probably never would have even closed. Um, but it's not. It's in a state park and so it's been closed and looks like it'll remain that way through most of the summer. Yeah, and I don't necessarily blame state parks for that. They're sort of viewed like if you view wilderness areas as kind of the, you know, the area for rugged, wild experiences, state parks are generally viewed, I think, fairly as like a family friendly experience. When people go there, they expect, you know, the facilities to be in good shape. So there is there is sort of a difference uh, in what people expect between these different places at the same time you know, you could just say a mountain's a mountain's a mountain and you should be able to climb it, uh, whatever shape the the trail is in or not. Uh, But that's, you know, that's, that's, that's a good debate. I don't think there's, it's a tough issue and I don't think there's an obvious answer, but it's, it's worth having that conversation. Anything else that we should know about the ongoing situation at Saddle Mountain or about the place in general? Well, I think we covered most of it, but one final thing that I wanted to add is that there really is a lot of work yet to be done here. And while they've sort of circled August or the end of summer as a tentative date or time frame for a reopening, Eric did tell me that it's it's likely that officials and volunteers will probably continue working through a lot of these issues even after it opens. But in any case, I know I'm very excited for it to reopen. 
and to get back up there. Its views, flora, and fauna, and striking topography make for an incredible hiking experience, and I hope that you all get to go out there and enjoy it sometime soon, hopefully in the near future. All right, well, that's about all the time we have left in today's show. If you liked what you've heard, check out our catalog of more than 60 episodes featuring Oregon's most beautiful and interesting places at statesmanjournal.com explore, along with Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, and Spotify. We'd once again like to thank our sponsors, beginning with the American Forest Resources Council. AFRC supports responsible forestry on public lands throughout the Pacific Northwest for our environment, for our economy, and for the future. Learn more at amforest.org. We'd also like to thank Visit Tillamook Coast. If you want to plan a trip out there, you can check out their outdoor recreation map that shows all the places to hike, swim, boat, and camp. You can find that map at tillamookcoast.com slash recreation hyphen map. Once again, that's tillamookcoast.com slash recreation hyphen map. And thanks to the Oregon Parks and Recreation Department, which stresses the importance of recreating responsibly and leaving no trace in Oregon's outdoors. Thanks for listening, and we hope you'll join us next time for the next edition of the Explore Oregon podcast.